Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I've returned to the New Book Network's History Channel. Today, we're going to be discussing the constitutional origins of the American Civil War out earlier this year by Cambridge University Press. The author is Michael F. Conlin. He's professor of history at Eastern Washington University. Welcome to the show, Professor Conlin. Thank you so very much for having me. So before we uh, dive into the uh, questions. Can you discuss a little bit about your uh, selection of the cover image for the book? Uh, yes, it's a kind of an iconic image by Currier and Ives of the uh, Massachusetts 54th storming Fort Wagner. And so it's uh, it pits uh, African-American soldiers fighting Southern secessionists um, in you know, perhaps the most secessionist state, South Carolina. Now, what prompted you to study the Fed? And so it seemed, uh, it, it seemed like a, uh, apropos uh, way to, you know, show the the uh, the book's argument of linking the Constitution and uh, and the Civil War. Thanks. Now, what prompted you to study the federal Constitution as quote more or less neutral, yet implemented in a pro-slavery fashion? And what do you mean by ordinary Americans and popular constitutionalism? And why did you organize the book thematically rather than chronologically? Well, I study the Constitution as more or less uh, neutral, um, just because I think the, a lot of the leading scholarship suggests um, that um, you know that the, there are parts, of course, of the Constitution that supported slavery, and and we'll cover those, I think, in some detail. The book, of course, does, um, <clears throat> but there are other parts that uh, have great promise for anti-slavery, um, and the Constitution. Uh, it, it was far more. Uh, pro-slavery and its implementation uh, than the, the mere text. And uh, Don Fehrenbacher's uh, book uh, makes this argument, so does Earl uh, Maltz. Um, and, and so, anyway, that's the, uh, and, and I think you'll see when you, when we talk about the book, and the listeners will see, uh, hear this as well, uh, that there was a lot, of the, a lot of ways the Constitution could have been, uh, the practice of the Constitution uh, could have been far less pro-slavery than it actually was. Um, and the book focuses on ordinary Americans um, and popular constitutionalism, uh, j- just to show that uh, you know, this wasn't a conceit of of elites. Um, I define ordinary Americans in a somewhat uh, idiosyncratic way uh, because this is uh, concerning the Constitution. And so I don't define ordinary Americans uh, versus elite Americans in terms of social class, but more. Uh, but actually in, in regards to their familiarity with the uh, Constitution. And I, I take this, uh, take my page from Michael Kamen, uh, who, had a, who first made this distinction uh, in a brilliant book on, the, on popular constitutionalism and uh, published about, I guess, two or three decades ago. Uh, but anyway, the, the idea is that um, um, most Americans, even Americans who went to university, even Americans who were lawyers, uh, did not have extensive training and constitutional law. 
Um, today, you know, it's quite a common thing in political science and history courses for undergraduates to have training in, in the Constitution um, and certainly in, in, in law school. But this is uh, this was not so in the in the U.S. in the 1840s and 50s. In fact, there were just a very few uh, law schools. Most most American lawyers are trained by reading law like Abraham Lincoln uh, and Stephen A. Douglas did. And so uh, in that way, they they had no real exposure uh, to constitutional law. And I define elites as people who uh, either taught constitutional law or who held a nation or statewide or, or national office um, as an effort to tease uh, to tease out um, or people who actually went to law school, even though they often didn't have a, a course in, uh, in constitutional law. And popular constitutionalism, quite simply, is, the, is looking at how we, the people, the American people, um, interpreted the Constitution, read the Constitution. And one of the arguments in my book is that um, antebellum Americans uh, had a pretty sophisticated knowledge of some very recondite uh, provisions of the Constitution. Uh, for example, the Guarantee Clause, clauses that uh, bits of the Constitution that most Americans today are only vaguely aware of or frankly aren't aware of at all and really are only known to, to specialists. Um, and I organized the book thematically uh, just because I, uh, I, I try to I look at the interpretations of the Constitution uh, by the American people, North and South, Black and White, um, elite and non-elite, as more or less static during this period. Um, and, and I try to, to follow various threads of, um, of, of, of elements of this popular constitutionalism. They don't so much evolve over time, but, but are kind of organized um, uh, in these various themes, many of which actually relate to the Constitution itself, the structure of the Constitution, the practice of the Constitution, and the implementation of the Constitution. How and why did most antebellum Americans celebrate the federal constitution as, quote, civil gospel? And how did the memory of anti-slavery, pro-slavery, and or silent framers and their constitutional euphemisms shape antebellum sectional divisions, anti-slavery factionalism, and the arguments of northern conservatives? Well, antebellum Americans were really quite proud that theirs was the first uh, written constitution. Um, they took great pride in that. They, they uh, loved to contrast their, uh, their, what they called the model republic, and it was a model constitutional republic with um, governments around the world, uh, including, uh, you know, and often it was an invidious comparison. Often the, they, they took it as unquestioned that the United States was the freest nation uh, in the world. Um, and they did so, of course, even though uh, slavery was an incredibly important part of our political, economic, and social system. They, they frequently made uh, contrast with the Ottoman Empire, the Russian Empire, various uh, European empires, the Habsburgs, the Bourbons, um, and of course, with uh, even with England, or I should say the UK, um, they, uh, of course, which uh, in some ways our system is a, uh, has a direct line to, they noted that the, Britain has an unwritten constitution, whereas we have a, a written one. And they noted that the, Britain had the House of Lords, and of course still does, um, and, and Britain, even with its great reform act of, uh, 1832, uh, enfranchised a tiny fraction of the, uh, British male population vis-a-vis, uh, the United States during the period of so-called Jacksonian democracy. And for all these reasons, then Americans, um, almost all Americans, really the Garrisonian abolitionists were the only exception, lauded the constitution 
um, as a as a charter of liberty, um, and and they celebrate it in ways that I think we you know we often reserve today for uh, the Bill of Rights or the Declaration of Independence. Uh, there were public readings of the Constitution. Uh, there were technical books that uh, gave uh, extended analyses of every clause of the Constitution. Um, and there were even some public celebrations where people paraded and, and, and lauded the Constitution. And as far as the, uh, you know, the founders, not only did the Annabelle Americans follow the, you know, know the Constitution and with quite an impressive sophistication, uh, they also knew a lot about the lives and deeds and the actions of the various founders, you know, the 55 delegates uh, to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787. Um, and they were um, uh, they anxiously awaited uh, uh, efforts of uh, various people to publish the notes or records of the of the convention. They were especially for particularly controversial bits of the Constitution, say the Fugitive Slave Clause, for example, or the Three Fifths Clause. Uh, they were quite well aware of the debates uh, in Philadelphia over the the merits or demerits of of those clauses, um, and. Um, um, and many of the, especially uh, when it came to the matters of the the, the sectional conflict over slavery, um, you know, m- many of the uh, people in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s took their cues from um, from uh, founders that they believed uh, followed their uh, beliefs, or that they uh, perhaps sometimes doing violence to the actual history uh, claimed well, followed their views. For example. Uh, almost everyone claimed uh, James Madison. He was the father of the Constitution. He was the single most influential delegate. And even though he was a lifelong uh, Virginia slaveholder, um, even uh, all but the most radical abolitionists, uh, the Garrisonians, claimed him as uh, as uh, either a proto-abolitionist or a dedicated, uh, positive, good advocate of slavery and everything uh, in between. How and why did the economic contours of early disputes over constitutional construction and individual rights focus on chattel slavery and then exacerbate sectional divisions? Also, why was the Guarantee Clause crucial in these antebellum debates, and how did this clause demonstrate the depths of popular knowledge of the federal constitution? Um, the, uh, you know, the, just as they uh, quarreled over the proper interpretation or, or construction, if you like, of the Constitution and various clauses um, or, or the various founders. They also quarreled over the various uh, proper constructions. And a lot of those debates are would be very uh, familiar to our ears today. There were certainly, uh, although they didn't necessarily call themselves this, originalists, uh, there were textualists, uh, there were advocates of a living Constitution. Those are the main, uh, the main schools. Um, and they were very much present in the 1830s, 40s, uh, and 50s. And of course, uh, you know, debates over uh, slavery quickly came uh, to focus on individual rights, the the right to property. To process, uh, we, we find the fifth uh, uh, in the due process clause and, and the Fifth Amendment, um, and of course, the right to individual liberty. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, slavery was uh, as it was, of course was a a social institution um, or a, and a, an arrangement, but also as an economic uh, arrangement. And white Southern slaveholders very much uh, considered slaves to be first and foremost property. Um, uh, and and it was uh, 
before the Civil War, most Americans believed the Tenth Amendment expressly put the uh, put the institution of slavery uh, beyond the reach of the federal government. It was one of those so-called delegated powers that the states had not uh, uh, had not given to the federal government. That 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 attitude would change once the war began, and eventually would culminate in in Abraham Lincoln's. Emancipation Proclamation, and ultimately in the uh, passage and ratification of the Thirteenth Amendment in December eighteen sixty five. Um, but this was uh, uh, th- these dif- disp- uh, disparate views of uh, how to interpret the Constitution, um, you know, came to focus on on slavery. Now, the the disparate views on how to interpret the Constitution uh, as regard to economic matters appeared quite early. You know, as early as the debate over whether it was permissible to have Congress establish a national bank uh, in the, just a couple of years after the Constitution was ratified during the administ- first term of the Washington administration. And even at that early date, we see some of the framers, the founders, Alexander Hamilton saying it was permissible and, and James Madison um, famously saying it wasn't. Uh, we see these debates over the uh, interpretation of the Constitution uh, from the very people who wrote it, uh, not even you know, not even half a dozen years after it was ratified, um, and and these my book just looks at the issues of slavery. Um, it doesn't uh, delve into these uh, wider ranging uh, issues. You know the issues of slavery um, and, and the issues that lead us to uh, to the Civil War. But uh, but it absolutely um, uh, shapes their uh, shapes the sectional conflict. And, and quite famously, if you look at the original constitution, the found, what I call the Founders Constitution, you'll see the words slavery, slaveholder, slave, slaves don't appear uh, in, the, in the text. And that was by design. Uh, James Madison used euphemisms uh, instead of those words for slavery and slaveholder. Uh, and he did so because he didn't want to mar the text of the constitution with those words. He hoped slavery would be ephemeral. Um, and he purposely... Uh, uh, convinced the drafters of the Constitution uh, to leave those words out. Uh, and that allowed some uh, abolitionists, I think sometimes uh, opportunistically or even cynically, to claim that the slavery wasn't even countenanced by the Constitution. Um, and uh, and it, it forced uh, defenders of, of slavery to, uh, you know, to unpack that and explain how and why the Constitution certainly did um, uh, in several cases, uh, the Three-Fifths Clause, the Fugitive Slave Clause, and the International Slave Trade Clause certainly uh, impacts uh, slavery and, and, and in uh, many cases, um, protect, defend, and perpetuate slavery. And uh, Northern conservatives, uh, given the uh, epithet doe-face, usually Democratic, but a few Whigs, um, uh, often supported white Southerners uh, on in their interpretations of the Constitution and in their protection of slavery. They often regarded this as their constitutional duty uh, to do so. Um, and and so, uh, you know, the Constitution really helps to uh, is really part of these uh, of the sectional conflict over slavery, the political conflict over slavery, and helps to uh, it helps to shape how people sort themselves out uh, in that conflict. So on that note, how did the idea of a federal ban on the international slave trade, entwined with an ending to chattel slavery, persist into the antebellum period for both pro-slavery and anti-slavery proponents? And what were arguments perhaps offered for the opposite? 
Also, what was the significance and insignificance of slave trade revivalism as well as its symbolism both in both the North and the South? Well, there was, um, uh, in 1787, um, uh, 10 of the 13 states had actually banned the international slave trade themselves. Um, and it was widely regarded as a, a barbarity, even by people who were perfectly happy to drive slaves in their own cotton fields or rice paddies. Um, and, and so when the issue came before the Constitutional Convention, um, it seemed at first blush like that would be very, a very straightforward matter to have the, give, empower the federal government to ban something that had already been banned by 10 of the 13 states. Uh, and the three states that hadn't done so were South Carolina, North Carolina, um, and Georgia. But as it turned out, um, both anti-slavery founders and pro-slavery founders believed um, that the constant importation of slaves from uh, either uh, Africa itself or from um, uh, uh, other parts of the Americas that practiced slavery was absolutely necessary to the maintenance of the slave system. And that was actually true for the vast majority of the slave systems in the New World. Um, but it was not true um, for the system in uh, the United States. The United States, uh, uh, in the early, relatively early in the colonial era, I think around the 1740s, 1750s, established a more or less equal sex ratio between female and male slaves. And that allowed uh, the state slave population to be stabilized by a natural increase rather than importation. Uh, but the founders weren't aware of this. And so they believed that to ban the federal slave trade or to have a federal ban on the slave trade, international slave trade, would, would be to end slavery in the United States, that eventually it would just uh, um, cease to exist. All the slaves would, in essence, either uh, die, would die off if they hadn't been liberated or freed themselves. Um, and, of course, it didn't turn out that way, but that's, that's part of what made that debate so fraught. Um, and that's where we get the rather curious uh, compromise that the International Slave Trade Clause has. Uh, what it does is it allows uh, states to import slaves until 20 years after the ratification of the Constitution. Um, if Congress chose to, you know, con Congress could, uh, con Congress, uh, after 20 years, could pass some kind of regulation. Everyone knew Congress was going to pass a law that would, in fact, ban uh, the federal slave trade. Um, um, but in those 20 years until then, states were free to uh, import new slaves. And South Carolina, in particular, um, imported uh, the better part of 80,000 slaves from 1788 to January 1st, 1808. Um, and uh, and to John Thomas Jefferson was president in 1807. Uh, he, to his great credit, convinced that uh, was the leading force. Uh, in fact, I argue that's his greatest anti-slavery contribution. Uh, he he uh, t uh, forced his party, which had majority in both the House and the Senate, to take up and pass uh, the, uh, the federal ban on the, on the federal slave trade or the international slave trade. Um, and uh, in the 1850s, there started to be proponents of reviving the slave trade. And this was kind of a logical extension of the positive good uh, defense of slavery. Um, the premise was that if uh, slavery was uh, a benefit not just to the master, but also to the slave, him or herself, then the slave trade itself uh, was a uh, a beneficial institution, a, a beneficial process, and should be encouraged. Um, and the the strange structure of the of the slave trade clause allowed both abolitionists 
uh, and advocates of of uh, and, and critics of the Constitution uh, claiming uh, t- to take credit the uh, pro pro slavery uh, the abolitionists the Garrisonians who criticized the Constitution as being pro slavery noted that uh, the Constitution for twenty years allowed the, the the barbarity of the Atlantic slave trade to to commence and that's absolutely true but the proponents of the anti slavery Constitution say but after that, it absolutely forbids it. And a few years later, I think it's 1819, 1820, Congress passes a law making plying the slave trade, if you're an American, an act, uh, an act of piracy um, with a potential capital uh, sentence. And, um, and and so anyway, it's uh, uh, it's just one of those uh, – It's many clauses of the Constitution were taken this way by advocates of slavery or opponents of slavery. And then, of course, the Garrisonians were their own little subset, but of, of – you know, they're – the actual text of the Constitution and the practice of the Constitution allowed uh, there to be multiple, you know, sometimes quite disparate interpretations of, of the of, of the how the Constitution acted, and that gets back to your original question about how it's uh, more or less neutral but implemented in a pro-slavery fashion. Thank you. How and why did the 1842 Prigg decision and the Compromise of 1850, including reauthorization of the Fugitive Slave Act, propel sectional divisions, slave power rhetoric, as well as northern conservatism? In addition, what were the ensuing, quote, personal liberty laws and those rescue commemorations? And how did they galvanize debates over sustaining the rule of law? Uh, Excellent questions. Um, Prigg versus Pennsylvania was a a case that concerned – uh, the rendition of a fugitive slave um, who had taken refuge in uh, Pennsylvania, um, and a, a slaveholder um, hired a man named Prig to go into Pennsylvania and take back uh, a female slave and her children, who, although they've been born in the free state of Pennsylvania, due to um, state and and uh, law and and federal policy were, were slaves by virtue of being born to a slave mother. Um, and uh, this was a, the most important um, case uh, when it concerned fugitive slaves. Um, <clears throat> and at the time, the, the federal government had passed and George Wa- or Congress had passed and George Washington had signed the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793. And so that was the operative um, um, law. All these were efforts to implement the Fugitive Slave Clause in the Constitution, um, which uh, gives it as a, a duty of states for comedy, interstate comedy, C-O-M-I-T-Y, to return to, to the state of origin of fugitive slaves, just as they would return to state of origin a fugitive from justice. Um, and in Prick versus Pennsylvania, jo- Joseph Story, the leading exponent of the Constitution in the antebellum era, uh, by far the most famous justice, also the author, Supreme Court justice, also the author of a, of a slew of uh, best-selling books about the Constitution, um, drafted uh, the, the Prigg decision. And that upheld um, the, uh, the right of the slaveholder to go into Pennsylvania, into a free state, uh, despite the fact there were some personal liberty laws at that time uh, passed tr- trying to protect the rights of of, of fugitive slaves. Uh, the the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 put the onus on the slaveholder to return his or her slave. Uh, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which was passed as part of the Compromise of 1850, put the onus 
on the federal government to assist the slaveholder. And for that reason, then the federal uh, slaveholders who alleged that alleged that they had a, a, a slave that had freed him or herself could actually get the help of federal marshals to uh, to detain and then uh, try to return their their slaves. And the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 denied alleged fugitives all due process protections. They weren't permitted to give testimony. They weren't prote- uh, allowed to cross-examine their accuser. They weren't allowed to have uh, presumption of innocence. They weren't allowed to have the assistance of counsel. Uh, all law, all rights, of course, enshrined in our Bill of Rights, part of the Constitution. And so after Prigg, and especially after uh, the Compromise of 1850, uh, the most of the free states passed uh, a slew of personal liberty laws, sometimes three or four apiece before the outbreak of the Civil War, uh, conform, conform, uh, uh, conferring upon alleged fugitives these various due process protections, including the assistance of counsel, the assumption of innocence, the right to give testimony, the right to um, uh, to cross-examine their accusers, that sort of thing. And um, and also the some radical abolitionists took it in their uh, into their hands to free alleged fugitives and, and in fact the most famous ones of course almost all of them in fact were ac- actually proper uh, fugitives um, and and this of course uh, uh, they used violence uh, in uh, in the case of Anthony Burns for example in uh, Boston in 1854. Uh, even uh, leading to the death of one of the guards. Um, And this led to great recrimination um, among conservative Northerners and certainly white Southerners uh, about uh, the absence of law and order, the defiance of the Constitution, of constitutional obligations, um, and uh, and was, uh, you know, helped to erode the confidence that white Southerners had that the Constitution really was um, as protective as they thought it would be. Now, it turns out that the Constitution, as I think we'll discuss a little bit later in, in this interview, was an, an incredible protection to slavery. And, of course, the issue of uh, fugitive slaves was a tiny, tiny uh, issue for all for sl- Southern slaveholders, except for those on the, on the border south, you know, in Maryland and Kentucky. Um, uh, and, and it was not a, a big concern in the, in the Deep South. It was very much uh, a marginal issue, but it, was, it had great symbolic, uh, symbolic importance. Uh, the, the idea was that this was a constitutional obligation that the North had uh, when it agreed to uh, ratify the Constitution to join uh, the Union, um, and that the North clearly was not living up to this obligation. Uh, there was a brilliant book uh, done in the 1960s that looked at uh, all... 300 or so cases of fugitive slaves uh, that were uh, remanded or were captured and considered under the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850s auspices, and it found that 93% were in fact uh, returned to slavery, um, and so that these these rescues and jury nullifications in some cases were incredibly rare and were very much went against the grain of the of the flow but they were of course publicized by um uh, states rights advocates and um southern extremists and helped to 
form, um, you know, a real sense of, of grievance among white Southerners that the North was not living up to its constitutional obligations, that it was defying uh, the Constitution, that if they didn't, couldn't trust them on this, why else could they, what else were they going to do to try to undermine slavery? Um, and all this compounds with the South's feeling of being a besieged, white Southerners, slaveholders' feeling of being a besieged minority um, in, the, uh, in the system. Uh, set up by the Constitution, which I think we'll we'll speak uh, uh, about quite soon. How how and why did state parity in the Senate help Southerners prevent the North from gaining a majority in the Senate and, along with the three-fifths compromise, keep the South competitive in presidential elections? Also, how were pro-slavery and conservative Northerners fears of Western free soil linked to an anti-slavery amendment? And why did much debate center over Delaware, Washington, D.C., and that gag rule? As I say, parity in the Senate was uh, far more important than the three-fifths clause in protecting the, the Southern minority from, quote, the tyranny of the Northern majority, unquote. White Southerners in the 18, actually going all the way back to the 1780s, but certainly in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s when the sectional conflict over slavery uh, became incredibly hot and intense and vitriolic, uh, worried about northern northern tyranny, in other words, about the North using its numerical majority to use our democratic system, the constitutional system, to impose regulations on slavery and possibly, ultimately, uh, anti-slavery or, or abolition amendments. Uh, for example, efforts to curb the domestic slave trade. Uh, efforts to impose an, uh, a gradual emancipation program on slaves, uh, efforts to just uh, immediately abolish slavery. There were a whole host of uh, fears. And so white Southerners were really uh, worried about the North using its numerical advantage um, in the House uh, to pass legislation, anti-slavery or abolitionist legislation. Uh, they were worried about the North using its uh, majority in the Electoral College to elect anti-slavery presidents. Um, and they came to rely on parity in the Senate as it's their most effective bulwark against this, quote, tyranny of the Northern majority, unquote. Parity in the Senate, quite simply, was the idea of maintaining the number of free states to be equal to the number of slave states. Uh, and that way, uh, the uh, South could ensure that the North would never have, uh, no matter how large the North's majority in the House might be, no matter how anti-slavery a president might be, the South could ensure that anti-slavery legislation would never uh, make it to the president's desk. Anti-slavery legislation would die in the Senate. Um, and the process of parry in the Senate, which I think is, is worthy of its own in-depth study, frankly, um, uh, it begins at least as early um, as, uh, uh, as, as uh, the 1790s. Um, and you will see if you look at the dates of admission, that states are carefully balanced and calibrated. Um, uh, the, uh, the, if a, usually it's a free state that's admitted first and then a counterbalancing slave state, but it, that's not always uh, the case. Um, and Perry in the Senate ensured then, um, and this process goes all the way up to 1850, and it's uh, only uh, with the admission of California as a... As a a free state in 1850 that upsets parity in the Senate. Um, white Southerners had expected, uh, and in fact, most Americans had expected California to be divided into two states, uh, Northern California, a free state, Southern California, a slave state. 
and Californians, not for the uh, last time, defied and surprised uh, national expectations by coming in as one massive uh, free state. And this, uh, as it turned out, ended Perry in the Senate. Now, uh, that wasn't, of course, immediately uh, known. And white Southerners cast about trying to restore Perry in the Senate. Uh, they did so in several ways. One, they tried to cut California in half. Um, they tried to make uh, carve out a, a, a part of South Cal- California that could be a slave state. They also tried to make uh, Utah and New Mexico into slave states uh, through popular sovereignty. And, of course, that failed. Uh, they also engineered the repeal of the Missouri Compromise, which was simply a piece of legislation passed by Congress and signed into law by President James Monroe. Um, and they tried then, and that, of course, allowed the possibility of slavery in the remnants of the Louisiana Purchase. And they tried to make famously make Kansas into a slave state, uh, which led to bleeding Kansas in the 1850s. And all these efforts failed. Uh, but that was why the South was so concerned about the westward expansion of slavery. I argue that that's, that's far more important than uh, soil uh, erosion uh, and leaching of, of nutrients in, uh, in the eastern seaboard southern states. That far more important. The uh, westward expansion of slavery turned out to be the, the immediate uh, most pressing political issue um, that causes the Civil War. The Democratic Party splits over the westward expansion of slavery the Republican Party forms over the westward expansion of slavery. Of course, the Republican Party opposes the admission of new slave states. Um, the Democratic Party divides into a part of the Democratic Party that once, uh, in 1860, that once a federal slave code, in other words, all slavery to be in all the Western territories. The Northern Democrats, uh, led by Stephen A. Douglas in the election of 1860, uh, favor um, uh, national, or I should say popular sovereignty. In other words, allowing the residents of the territories themselves to decide whether they're slave states or not. Uh, and this issue, this incredibly important issue, the westward expansion of slavery, has its import because of parity in the Senate. Everyone realized uh, that parity in the Senate was uh, this huge bulwark protecting slavery. Abolitionists who hoped to pass an anti-slavery amendment uh, realized that they had an incredibly steep hill to climb because they had to get two-thirds of each House of Congress to approve an anti-slavery amendment. And then they had to get three-quarters of the states. Um, and uh, this would prove to be an incredibly high bar. In fact, it was only surmounted because of the Civil War and, and the disruption of, uh, of, of national politics. And I argued that the, the parity in the Senate was such an incredible uh, protection for white, Southern, white Southerners' uh, practice of slavery uh, that I note that even today in our union of 50 states, that if all 15 slave states had refused to assent uh, to, the, to the 13th Amendment, it would not have passed even today. Uh, we would need to have 60 states and the other 45 free and supporting it. And, and so uh, white Southerners, in their efforts to secede, uh, tr- uh, from their point of view, tragically miscalculate about, uh, they don't realize just what an effective bulwark uh, parity in the Senate and the incredible difficulty we have in amending our Constitution uh, were for the protection of slavery. Um, and I should note that our Constitution uh, is uh, among, if not, uh, the most difficult to amend in the world, or perhaps the most difficult to amend uh, in the world. And so um, the, the uh, parity in the Senate then was an incredible uh, protection uh, to white Southerners. Um, 
And uh, added to this was uh, the, uh, and of course that's an implementation of the Constitution, right? That uh, appeared in the Senate, not required by the Constitution, uh, was also uh, another part of this was the uh, two-party system. Um, the two-party system, uh, which was, uh, you know, imposed on, uh, was highly likely to be brought about because of our in, uh, first past the post or winner take uh, uh, winner take all system of uh, of 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 politics uh, in single member electoral districts. All those things strongly tend towards, uh, according to Derringer's law, uh, towards a, a, a strong two party system. Uh, what that meant was that uh, both the first political party system between the Democratic Republicans and the Federalists, and then later the second one between the Whigs and the Democrats, the national parties tried to evade the issue of slavery because they wanted to appeal to voters in the North and the South, uh, non-slaveholding voters and slaveholding voters. And for that reason, then, they tended to balance their presidential tickets. Uh, they frequently had a slaveholder and a non-slaveholder, a northerner and a southerner on the ticket, and they would often alternate. If a, if a, a slaveholder was at the top of the ticket on, in year four, then the slaveholder uh, would be uh, vice president, a slaveholder would be vice president, and a non-slaveholder would be the presidential candidate in year eight, if you like, the next the next presidential cycle. Um, and, and Doe faces northern... Democrats, usually Democrats, occasionally Whigs, you know, so-called uh, Northern men with Southern principles served a, v- a valuable role in this system of, of serving as the running mates to white Southerners. And in some cases, you know, passing, re- uh, you know, playing a key role as president in passing uh, crucial uh, legislation. For example, the repeal of the Missouri Compromise by the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854 uh, by... Um, uh, uh, Pierce, Franklin Pierce. Uh, uh, and so, um, so the, the, um, the, the combination of the two party practice parody in the Senate, um, and these, uh, and, and the, the, the use of doe faces were all, uh, pro slavery practice that went beyond the more or less neutral, uh, constitution. I think it was more pro slavery than, than, anti-slavery, but it certainly had some anti-slavery uh, in the text and structure of the Constitution, but its implementation uh, was far more pro-slavery um, uh, than, than anti-slavery. Between 1858 and 1860. Um, and and um, I, I should note that the, the focus on the westward expansion of slavery um, uh, also made a made white Southern slaveholders concerned about, uh, you know, the, the, the necessary for Perry and the Senate made white Southern slaveholders really worried about losing some of their states. There are a couple of marginal slave states, Delaware first and foremost among them, who are in danger of becoming free states. Um, uh, Delaware had a tiny slave population. It's less than 2,000 in 1850. It's less than 1,200 um, in 1860. Um, it was widely expected by Northerners and Southerners to flip from a free state to a slave state, and that made white Southerners all the more anxious about trying to restore uh, parity in the Senate in the 1850s. As it turned out, Delaware would tenaciously hang on to slavery um, until the 13th Amendment, um, despite blandishments by the Lincoln administration during the 
um, civil war of, of compensated emancipation. But this did focus, you know, th- th- this helps to explain why what the westward expansion of slavery was so important. It helps to explain why white Southern slaveholders in the deep South were worried about the status of slavery in Missouri and Kentucky and Maryland and in Delaware. Uh, they were quite worried about the so-called slave drain uh, where they would lose these marginal slave states, these border slave states, um, and they would go to the free state column and make it that much easier for uh, northern uh, legislators to possibly pass an anti-slavery uh, amendment. Between 1858 and 1860, how did a sectional party system enervate leadership roles and disrupt the functioning of the three federal branches, while the northern majority overcame divisions and began to vote as a block, all of the southern minority? Also, why did these doe faces and southern, southerners conceive of Lincoln's 1860 election as unconstitutional? Um, the constitutional system uh, really started to feel strain under the sectional, uh, with the rise of a sectional party, with the rise of the um, f- first uh, the Liberty Party, then the Free Soil Party, and most importantly, the, uh, the Liberty Party in 1840 and 44, the Free Soil Party in 1848 and 1852, and most especially by the Republican Party, which of course is the... Um, lineal of, uh, uh, you know, forebear of today's Republican Party. Um, uh, the Republican Party began as a response to the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which repealed the Missouri Compromise, um, and these, quote, anti-Nebraska, unquote, um, many of them Whigs, some of them Democrats, uh, were angered by the end of this uh, sectional compromise, which, although it was merely a piece of legislation, had this kind of halo this aura of being actually as essentially part of the constitution itself. And they formed this so-called sectional party, a party that made the Republican party um, that made no effort to win white Southern votes that, that was predicated on just turning out um, abolitionists and free soilers, people who oppose slavery and people who oppose the westward expansion of slavery. And the Republican party in the presidential election of 18, uh, 56 came within just two states, uh, Pennsylvania and either Illinois or Indiana, of actually winning the presidential election. An incredibly auspicious um, beginning for the Republican Party. And it just served notice that this long-standing system of, of, of national parties balancing their tickets with northern and southern running mates of doe faces helping out southern uh, southerners in the house and the senate and passing uh, legislation that helped slavery or protected slavery or defended slavery this whole system was in in jeopardy um, and the our, our whole system frankly even now is is dependent on a whole host of, of people working well together uh, and a modern example would be there are a lot of of things in the senate that can only uh, proceed or can proceed quickly if, if they have unanimous consent. And if they don't have unanimous consent, uh, that can cause the whole thing to be a very tedious, long process, right? They have to read every bill, for example, every word of every bill. And a very similar um, uh, crisis, paralysis, innervation took place uh, in the 18, late 1850s. Um, the, probably the most famous example of this was the inability to select a, le- a speaker uh, for the House of Representatives. Um, if a speaker could not be uh, uh, elected, then the president could not give his uh, address to the joint session of Congress, or the, the 
the the begin the tradition that we now have in the State of the Union address. Um, and so we and and it meant that no bills could be pa- passed. Uh, the whole government was in effect uh, paralyzed, and there were multiple crises in the 1850s, uh, late 1850s, about electing a a speaker of the house. And this this was uh, sh- showed very clearly the um, the breakdown in the two party system, the breakdown in this in the system of having two national parties um, with doe faces helping to uh, cobble together effectively a pro slavery governing majority. And um, a similar crisis was with with, the, with these presidents and the. Uh, and they, the last two presidents before the Civil War were Northern Doe faces, uh, Franklin Pierce from New Hampshire and James Buchanan, who, uh, you know, is often listed as perhaps as one of the very worst presidents, uh, a Doe face from uh, Pennsylvania. Um, and, and they had, uh, you know, they were people who were selected largely because of being genially uh, pro-Southern and pro-slavery. Um, and uh, the, the whole system uh, started to break down with the very little effective leadership from the presidents, Congress uh, being, you know, paralyzed. And when it did finally organize, you know, sputtering, uh, having uh, m- members, especially in the House, but also in the Senate, being armed, uh, having nasty confrontations, including fist fights and threats of, uh, of personal violence uh, with firearms. And uh, and even the the Supreme Court, which had a long time held itself up as uh, being above the fray, the political and sectional fray, had had weakened its uh, political standing and its regard nationwide by its notorious Dred Scott decision in 1857, um, where it very uh, bluntly said that it was unconstitutional for Congress for the Congress to pass laws that. Uh, made uh, that prohibited the slavery slaves from being taken into the Western territories. A, a, a pretty shocking uh, bit of uh, of actually putting their thumb on the political scale, and of course along the way, uh, Justice Taney, Chief Justice Taney, who wrote the uh, pronounced or spelled Taney, but pronounced Taney, put his thumb on the scale and and clearly said that people of African descent were not intended by the founders to be citizens, and hence were not, uh, even though. Uh, there were many, many citizens, uh, black citizens of the United States. Uh, they they'd voted. They'd been issued passports. They'd fought in wars. They did all sorts of things that showed that they were citizens. And so, uh, you know, by, by that time, then there were real concerns all across um, the American political spectrum about uh, our constitutional form of government, about how it how it was uh, acting under the incredible strains of the sectional. Uh, tensions over the political issue of slavery, um, and um, Lincoln's election or the presidential election of 1860 put the you know was the perhaps the the coup de gras, the final blow. As I said before, the Republicans ran Abraham Lincoln on a free soil platform, a platform that was um, that would not let slavery to expand. In other words, uh, would keep South, the South from restoring parity in the Senate. Um, the Northern Democratic Party, which or the Democratic Party, if it had stayed united, would it, would have certainly prevailed. Uh, instead, divided over the westward expansion of slavery. Uh, John Breckinridge ran as a Southern Democrat on a slavery in all the all the territories. Stephen A. Douglas ran as a um, 
on popular sovereignty, which in other words, allow the voters of the territories to decide. Um, Lincoln, of course, uh, and there's a fourth party, uh, the Constitutional Union Party, um, which has, takes no stance on the great issues of the day, but just tries to cash in on a, on a reverence for the Constitution. Um, uh, and uh, Lincoln wins. He, he wins a crushing electoral uh, victory, a great electoral victory, but only uh, le- less than uh, 40% of the popular vote. Um, and, and many uh, Southerners and even some Northern Doe faces regard his election as unfair or unconstitutional or against the spirit of the Constitution, technically legal or constitutional, but really not uh, a disgraceful election. Uh, they did not regard, they regarded it as inherently unfair for a, a presidential candidate to be, a president to be elected without any electoral votes from the South. Uh, and in fact, the uh, Republicans weren't even on the uh, uh, on the lists in, in in a majority of the slave states. Uh, you couldn't even vote for Lincoln if you wanted to in in the Deep South. And he received you know several you know tens of thousands of votes from some of the upper uh, South states uh, like Virginia, uh, Maryland. Uh, but but he was clearly a, a president that did not receive a majority of the popular vote. Uh, did not receive. Um, he received a plurality of the popular vote, and he was a president who received no electoral votes uh, from the South, and who was regarded as an enemy of the South. As a, uh, and despite the fact that Lincoln had a rather moderate uh, policy on slavery, he was not an abolitionist. Uh, he was a person who regarded slavery personally as a morally evil, and he foresaw the end of slavery due to its internal contradictions. He had no anti-slavery platform. Um, he pledged to enforce the laws as they were, including the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Um, and uh, and he certainly, um, uh, his election, nonetheless, his election was was perceived by many white Southerners as the first of a of a series of increasingly anti-slavery Northern tyrants. Uh, one Southerner, Edwin Ruffin, calls it, it an abolitionist dynasty. Um, and and so it's in response uh, it's in response to this so-called unconstitutional election of Lincoln uh, that white Southerners really start talking about um, secession. Please briefly trace debates over and opinions on the federal constitution as a compact between the states and the constitution as the supreme law of the land under the, under the supremacy clause. In your brief assessment, please address how and why most antebellum Americans believe that the federal constitution was established by both the people and the states and how this common belief shifted to debates over the constitutional right to secede in both the North and the South. That's, that's a great question. Um, America, uh, Constitution, uh, Annabelle Americans had uh, what we might consider um, mixed or incoherent even views about the fundamental nature of the Constitution. There were two main views of it, and we even have this to a certain extent even today. One is a compact of the states, in other words, an agreement between the states. Uh, under this notion, uh, and this was the notion favored by states' rights advocates, um, in the South, and, and some of them in the North, of course, uh, the states were sovereigns, and they ceded some part of their sovereignty to the federal government for limited, narrow, expressed ends that were outlined in the Constitution. For example, the common defense, uh, imposing tariffs, uh, that sort of thing, um, having common weights and measures. Um, but the rest of their sovereignty they retained 
Um, and since it was in a compact, which is a you know kind of a fancy word for an agreement, uh, if the federal government overstepped uh, its proper domains, if it started intruding upon or usurping powers that were properly reserved to the states, the states could in fact leave the Constitution, could secede, or possible or uh, a step before that, they could nullify an unconstitutional law. In other words, make that law. Uh, null and void within the confines, within the borders of that state. Um, the other main school of thought was that the Constitution set up a permanent frame of government or a charter of government. And the idea w- of that was that the states, uh, in essence, made themselves, um, or, or the people of the states, made those states an inferior sub- uh, political subset. Uh, that the states, when they joined the Union, subsumed their sovereignty into national sovereignty, and they had only limited powers, um, and that uh, this was a permanent union. Once you joined, you couldn't leave, um, and that the states weren't sovereign, but we, the people, as the, as the preamble uh, set forth. Um, and I have to say uh, that uh, the Constitution itself, um, the Founders Constitution, has uh, since kind of mixed messages uh, about this. There, there are certainly arguments to be made on both sides. For example, uh, the preamble clearly says we the people are sovereign and we the people elect our representatives uh, to the House. And of course, those representatives are, uh, help, uh, uh, you know, we elect people to the um, electoral college. We elect delegates uh, uh, in most cases, uh, in some cases, originally at least indirectly and in, in by, the, by the approach of the Civil War directly, uh, delegates to the electors to the electoral college. Um, and of course, people have uh, rights that uh, individual people have, have rights that were spelled out in the Bill of Rights, um, uh, and so that might make us think it's quite clear that the Constitution really is a, a charter or a permanent frame of government. But there's actually quite a bit in the in the Founders Constitution uh, that uh, undercuts that. That suggests it's a compact of the states. Uh, Article Seven lays out the ratification clause, and that clearly gives um, the uh, states the you know the 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 power to ratify the the constitution. The constitution wouldn't come into power, in other words, until the state, not the people, but the states, uh, said it did. It made the states, in effect, so many sovereigns. Also, the states, uh, in Article One and Two, have the states elect the senators. The the senators uh, until the Seventeenth Amendment in the uh, early twentieth century. The senators actually represented the states, not the people in those uh, states. And of course, that part of the Electoral College um, uh, was, in essence, uh, representing the states. And uh, most states by the 1850s actually had direct election of the senators. But uh, for much of the constitutional history, uh, many states had indirect election of senators. In other words, or electors, I should say, electors were appointed. And of course, uh, before the incorporation of the Bill of Rights, the individual states could and did limit the liberties that the people enjoyed in the Bill of Rights. Um, and they, of course, did that until uh, inc- selective incorporation began in the, in the mid-20th century. And, and lastly, the states uh, can change the Constitution itself through the Amendment Clause in Article 5. Um, and, and so... Uh, there were advocates of a, of a compact, had quite a bit of evidence to support uh, this interpretation, and advocates of a charter or permanent frame of government had quite a bit of uh, evidence to support their interpretation. 
And of course, part of this uh, seeming um, inconsistency is, is the fact that the Constitution was not written by one person or a small group of people. It was written by a large group of people uh, who made a series of political compromises and who, who didn't necessarily agree on the fundamental nature uh, of, of the Constitution. Um, and, and it goes even beyond that. The, uh, the guarantee clause uh, gives the federal government the power to intervene in the uh, kind of counterbalancing the amendment clause gives the states the power or the federal government to power to intervene in a state to, quote, ensure a Republican form of government. Um, and, uh, and then lastly, the 10th Amendment uh, states that people, the people and the states have powers that were not expressly delegated to the federal government. And those uh, remain, of course, that seems to support both we the people being sovereign and uh, the states uh, being sovereign. And so the the Constitution had lots of, uh, uh, had, had, uh, you know, had arguments on both sides. And and ordinary Americans did not see them as opposites, uh, the compact and the charter, in fact, I unearthed many uh, letters written um, by Northerners um, and Southerners, pro-slavery, anti-slavery, uh, doe faces, uh, so forth and so on, where they basically say the Constitution is both a compact and a charter. <laughs> um, uh, and, um, and, and, the, and this helps to undergird the idea of whether there's a constitutional right to secede. Um, the the uh, the you know some white Southerners advocates of states' rights advocates advocates of the uh, compact theory believe of course uh, secession was all along an implicit um, right one of those uh, powers that were uh, that weren't named but were were retained by the states they thought it was preposterous that there was an idea that you could join the union but could never leave. Um, I like to joke in my classes that that sounds kind of like the mob, uh, right? You can join the mob, but you can, you, you can't leave the mob. Um, um, and, uh, and, and many uh, and advocates of the permanent frame of government said it was exactly that the states had subsumed their, uh, their sovereignty into the federal government. They could not leave. Um, it was an absolute impossibility. Um, when uh, and I found cases of even anti-slavery Northerners ad- admitting there was a, a Southern right to secede. Now many of them would quibble and say, rather than being a constitutional right, it was in fact a natural a, a right of natural law. In other words, they if they were an oppressed person, they could they could go. But that that meant, of course, it was extra constitutional rather than constitutional. But this was an issue that was widely um, debated and discussed um, at, at this time. Um, and uh, and once the Civil War began, though uh, opinions in the North hardened, and and, and even even most doe faces uh, regarded secession as unconstitutional, as a real threat to the rule of law, as a as a, a blow to the the model republic. Right? Many of them thought there was nothing. The Civil War had at stake the very future of of, of constitutional government, democratic constitutional government, not just in the United States but in the world. Uh, they believe the United States was the model republic, um, and that if if constitutional government, democratic constitutional government, failed the United States, it would fail. You know, the, the, our great example would not be followed by other nations. We would it, it would uh, all go horribly wrong. 
Um, and of course, uh, white settlers, once the war began, even those who had, uh, most of those anyway, even uh, those who had qualms about the niceties of secession, was it constitutional right? Was it a resort of natural law? Was it warranted? Was, it, uh, was this uh, the right response? Um, mo- most of those white southerners closed ranks and supported secession as being um, uh, as being the proper remedy, regardless of whether it was a constitutional uh, right uh, or or a resort of natural law. How and why was the secession crisis a stalemate over federal efforts to maintain union as attempts to compromise versus attempts at coercion? Further, what were examples of northern and southern demands in such proposals, and how did the lame duck period aggravate the crisis? Uh, the the uh, secession crisis um, was both a uh, was was a stalemate. Um, the Constitution was silent, of course, about secession. Um, it didn't say states could secede. It didn't say states could not secede. Um, uh, it was also silent, of course, about what to do if states did secede. Um, and so, uh, President James Buchanan often, I have to say, vilified or uh, demonized, uh, was in an incredibly difficult position. Um, he was facing a literally unprecedented crisis, and uh, it was not clear what to do. Um, one option, of course, was coercion. He could, at least in theory, claim this was a clear violation of the Constitution, secession, um, and have, uh, as commander-in-chief, lead uh, the U.S. Armed Forces into the South and enforce the Constitution, the rule of law in those states. Um, that would be, of course, a really momentous step. And Buchanan was quite reluctant to do that, A, because he was a doe-face, uh, B, he wasn't sure it would, of course, work. And C, he was worried about, uh, as uh, you know, this happens uh, as he becomes a lame duck president. Uh, president, uh, uh, the election, of course, takes place in November. Um, and uh, then there's this uh, four-month period uh, for uh, until uh, Lincoln takes over when he's merely president-elect. And Buchanan's quite... Um, uh, you know, d- does not want to tie the hands of his successor. He does not want to take an, uh, an, such a strong action that it cannot be undone. He doesn't think that's fair. Um, and, and so it's kind of a stalemate. Uh, uh, he, he, since he can't, uh, it, since coercion seems to be um, un, uh, untenable, he pins his hopes on compromise. Uh, now, of course, the, the United States Congress had passed a series of compromise bills, uh, laws about slavery, the Missouri Compromise of 1819-2021, the Compromise of 1833, the Compromise of 1850, um, uh, and, and those had you know, kind of patched over the sectional conflict over slavery. Um, but Congress, of course, was not as highly functioning as it was um, in 1819, uh, in the 1819 1819- 1820s and the 1830s, or certainly in 1850, uh, they have the rise of the Republicans. It's compounded by the fact that the president's a lame duck, that a, a, sec, a so-called sectional president was poised to take over. Uh, it was also uh, aggravated by the fact that uh, Congress uh, w- would go out of session just as the new uh, just as the new president would uh, w- would take over. Um, the the uh, 
we've solved many of these problems, some of these problems about the the lame duck period for both Congress and and the president today with uh, several amendments and and changes in practice. But uh, the the U.S. system back then um, just was not prepared to handle a, a crisis like this. And uh, it would take really effective leadership by a president to cobble together some kind of of compromise. And of course, the other the other problem was the compromises all uh, were related to uh, the westward expansion of slavery and the protection of slavery. And they're quite simply, it was a real stretch to get the compromise of 1850, 10, 11 years earlier. In fact, many historians regard this as an armistice because there was very little compromising done, just uh, a, f- a small group of swing voters uh, helped make the difficult votes uh, uh, possible uh, for both the pro-North uh, provisions and the pro-Southern uh, provisions. Um, and so all these, um, all these efforts uh, undercut the ability for compromise. There was not strong presidential leadership. The president was a lame duck. Uh, the parties were divided. Um, they were uh, they could not agree. The South basically asked for um, constitu- provisions that would protect slavery from a constitutional amendment. Um, even though, uh, frankly, we now know, uh, you know, I argue very clearly, I think th- those weren't necessary. Um, and the North, of course, could not agree t- to grant it. And and so uh, neither coercion nor stalemate, uh, uh, nor compromise w- was able to to resolve uh, the secession crisis. Um, and you know the the various proposals to resolve the sectional crisis, uh, the, the so-called Crittenden Compromise, uh, the Washington Peace Plan, uh, these all had elements of compensation for for slaveholders whose fugitives uh, were not properly rendered to them under the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, um, uh, protections against you know a, a, a additional. Southern states, slave states, so that they could restore parity in the Senate, um, uh, protections against uh, anti uh, anti slavery legislation, all those sorts of things, and those were just the sorts of things uh, that uh, certainly Republicans, but even some uh, Democrats, weren't prepared uh, to grant. Uh, and, and so, uh, at the very end, you know, I, I argue that the Constitution was unable to resolve the political dispute over slavery. Um, the South was a political minority. It wanted to protect its uh, economic, social uh, institution of, of slavery. Um, and over time, the North became increasingly less uh, willing to, to, to agree to abide by slavery. And the Constitution was unable, uh, for a variety of reasons, to resolve this uh, dispute. Uh, the two-party system um, uh, was not nimble enough. Uh, the the meetings of Congress and the assumption of power by the new president were not seamless enough. Uh, the the whole structure of the of the federal government was unable uh, when push came to shove to resolve this issue, and that's ultimately why we we have the Civil War. That's why I argue the the Constitution. Um, the Constitution's inability to resolve the political dispute over slavery causes the Civil War. Um, and the Civil War settles these matters uh, to, to a great extent. Um, not many people today argue the Constitution is a compact of the states. 
um, the not many people argue, at least not many, uh, uh, you know, political leaders and, and commentators argue that secession uh, is a uh, proper remedy for aggrieved minorities, uh, political minorities in, in states. Um, the Constitution uh, finally has an anti-slavery amendment um, that, that begins the process of fundamentally changing the Founders' Constitution. Um, and short on, you know, quickly on its heels, we'll, we'll see the 14th and the 15th Amendments fundamentally reshaping uh, the relationship between the federal government uh, and the states and the federal government's interest in protecting uh, certain groups of people from discrimination that had for decades been um, certainly perfectly constitutional and business uh, as usual. Um, and, and it reflects, I think, in, in the end, the triumph of the jurisprudence of the living constitution. Of American people, of the American people, changing the Constitution to bring it into line uh, with their uh, changing beliefs and preferences and practices. Uh, I think that was that's key to our Constitution, which is, the, of course, the longest standing and serving Constitution to having such a long span. You know, Francis had five different constitutions in the span of our one uh, Constitution, and part of a lot, part of this, the trick to allowing our constitution to grow and expand with the constitution is this de facto adoption of this living constitution uh, jurisprudence. It's allowed the United States to grow from a small settler uh, community of about three or four million on the eastern seaboard to becoming a superpower uh, that spans the entire continent of North. Uh, of North America from the Atlantic to the Pacific has over 300 million people, uh, incredibly diverse population, ethnically, racially, uh, religiously, and and so forth and so on. Um, And it's, I think, of course, uh, how we uh, will have to uh, proceed uh, in this American experiment in uh, constitutional uh, democratic self-government. Well, thank you for being on the show today, Professor Conlin. On behalf of the New Books Network, This is Ryan Tripp. The book is The Constitutional Origins of the American Civil War, out earlier this year by Cambridge University Press. Please tune in next time.